Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I am um, I'm very pleased to be in, uh, I wish I was in the room, but on the phone with Chris Moore Backman. We've been trying to get together at this hour and that hour and that day and this day and all of that. And finally, we found each other in the now. So that's pretty good. Chris Moore Backman, activist, organizer, journalist, and educator, has worked with a wide variety of human rights, peace, and social justice organizations, including the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Alternatives to Violence Project, Christian Peacemaker Teams, and Right sharing of world resources. He has served on peace teams in Colombia and Palestine and is the producer of the radio documentary series Bringing Down the New Jim Crow. Presently, I've been reading his book The Gandhian Iceberg, a non-violence manifesto for the age of the great turning. And I've never done this, but here we are. I've asked Chris if he would open by reading a paragraph of his book on page 223. Sure. Thank you, Joanna. So from page 223, and this is a chapter, uh, it's from a chapter entitled In Service to the Movement of Movements. Our reactive firefighting strategy isn't working. Most of us have lived with chronic and often acute feelings of frustration, powerlessness, or despair because of this. Good on us for keeping on, nevertheless. That's a beautiful thing about us. But I and a growing number of change makers are coming to see that the time has now come for us to heed the call to build our movement of movements. The idea is not simply to cast the widest net possible. It's an invitation to envision anew who we are collectively and to take full account of what it is we're up against. It's an invitation to honestly assess this critical moment in history, to chart our best course in service to the great turning, and to bring all of our work to a whole new level. Mm. See, this sounds like a prayer to me. It... um... It really feels like um, it penetrates my body and uh, I want to know, I want you to tell us what are you doing to make that come true? Well, thank you for asking a question that goes straight to the heart. (laughs) That's for sure. Mm. 
You know, I'm um, I'm really grateful that I heard the the message internally that it was time to write this book, uh, and I would say that at present the thing that I'm focusing most of my energy on is shepherding this book and um, carrying out conversations with people who are taking an interest in it and uh, learning so much from folks' responses to it. And I would say at the heart of that, the, you know, the motivation for that fellowship with folks who are reading the book is all about this movement of movements concept that's right there in the, the middle of that paragraph you, you had me read. This idea of doing whatever we can to carry about this convergence of all of these different social change struggles and causes to begin to knit ourselves together in a way that we haven't seen before uh, with the recognition that all of these different struggles, whether the focus may be on ecology or climate or racism in the U.S. or sexism, uh, animal rights, uh, you name it, um, any of these concerns that, that we might feel drawn to in a particular way are, of course, knit together with, with every other such concern that has to do with this desire to bring about a just and life-sustaining way of life and to live in a just and life-sustaining society. So I guess in answer to your question, I would say I'm, I'm playing my part in a small way to, as an evangelist, I guess, for this movement of movements idea, mm. uh, because I and I, I think a growing number of people are beginning to feel that that kind of macro movement that ties together all of these seemingly disparate struggles uh, is the only thing that, that, that might carry the, the power and needed intention to, to really turn this thing around and to bring about what Joanna Macy and, and others call the Great Turning, which is this epochal shift from our, our current extraction-based industrial growth society to a truly just and life-sustaining society. So this conversation I'm having with you right now is, is really at the heart of what I'm doing these days in hopes of playing a small part in furthering that, that great assignment. Indeed, indeed. So what we're talking about here concretely is nonviolent resistance to the Trump administration and everything that is not life-serving. I wrote down mature activism. Yeah, and I would say, as I as I feel that is implicit in in what you've just said, that the Trump administration is indicative of of a larger cultural illness. I would say that that has been with us for such a long time and has been building and uh, moving moving throughout our our organism as a human family for such a long time. 
And um, what I've tried to do with this book, The Gandhian Iceberg, is to invite Gandhi down from the pedestal we, we tend to place him up on and, and that we've reserved for him, and to um, see what we can learn from what he taught and what he modeled. And uh, I continue to feel that he has so much to say to us at this present moment. And I like that phrase you used um, of mature, I don't know if you said mature resistance or mature... Mature activism. Mature activism. Yeah, I definitely think that now is is a time when when we need to um, really reflect on what that might look like, a mature activism that's spiritually grounded uh, and that has a, a, a long view so that we're aware with each step that we're, we're not simply trying to tinker with the machine as it is, but we're trying to recognize our own ability on an individual level and on a collective level to choose something entirely different uh, in terms of how we organize ourselves in community, how we support one another in a way that is life-serving. And I just really appreciate how you opened our conversation, Joanna, by you know sharing your feeling that that paragraph I read uh, was a prayer. And there's a way in which I I feel that the whole book is, is, is a, a prayer, prayer. Yes. Uh, the, a prayer that was given to me to, to try to yeah, release from my own heart, my own body into the world. And thanks for reading it in such a way where you could hear it that way, receive it that way. It, it really touches me deeply. And it, you know where it got to me at the beginning when... You speak about the fact that, um, I mean, it was a few days ago, I was reading, but I'll paraphrase grossly, that you were talking with somebody in India and uh, and they said that, um, I can't, uh, I'm, okay, I'm not going to be shy about uh, that uh, Gandhi's uh, objectives were not met at all. And that touched me so deeply because we can't go anywhere unless we recognize where we are. In other words, that we recognize that uh, uh, Gandhi is, is, didn't bring about perfection. And it seems like the word, the, this feeling goes around, oh, Gandhi, as you said, the pedestal where we put him. No, he brought, he lived and taught certain principles that are constantly metamorphosing and evolving. So, if you could, uh, I'll ask you a double question here. Sure. First of all, what makes you call the book The Gandhian Iceberg? And then if you could respond to that, that thought where, you know, it, touched me so deeply that it was so imperfect. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, Thank you. The the Gandhian iceberg uh, is a metaphor. It plays with the often used conventional metaphor of an iceberg uh, where, you know, folks talk about the different 
parts of the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg being that part that juts out above water and the you know most substantial weightiest part of the iceberg is obviously the hidden part under the waterline. So I play with that metaphor a little bit by adding uh, a third dimension to it. So there's the the part under the the water uh, in my attempt to describe Gandhi's approach to nonviolence, I speak of that part of the iceberg under the water as self-purification. This is the phrase that Gandhi used to describe that lifelong process of trying to bring our, our own principles into alignment with our practice. That is to say, our deepest held commitments and beliefs, uh, bringing those into alignment with our behavior our, in our daily lives. So that, in the, in the Gandhian schema, is the largest, most substantial uh, dimension of the work of nonviolence, and it's the hidden part under water. Above water, which is usually referred to as the tip of the iceberg when folks speak of this, you know, sort of conventional metaphor, I call that bulk of the part of the ice above water a constructive program. This is the aspect of Gandhi's approach that is all about building a new society, the society in which we we long to, to live, building that within the shell of the old. So taking the same principles of nonviolence and a, a deeply spiritual uh, rootedness from that individual personal practice that's, you know, the bulk of the work under the waterline. When we move into constructive pra- uh, program, we're taking that out into the world and uh, trying to transform the community to the best of our ability and, and in relationship with one another. And then playing with that metaphor just a bit more, I call the tip of the iceberg the part of that ice above water that sort of juts out. And it's the, it's, you might say it's the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And that edge of the iceberg uh, is Satyagraha. This is the part of Gandhi's practice for which I believe he is most famous. This is the political action aspect uh, or what Gandhi called satyagraha, which is the word often translated as nonviolent resistance, uh, but which can also be translated as soul force or adherence to truth. Um, this is where we meet the forces of empire and domination head on and actively resist. And so the Gandhian iceberg is all three of those aspects, and I, I argue in the book that it's a model, so it only takes us so far, and one thing that models often do that is not helpful is uh, it can present the illusion that these compartments are discrete and separate from one another. I chose the iceberg image to try to get across the fact that all of these three parts are part of one solid chunk of ice, one indivisible structure, so that self-purification and constructive program and satyagraha uh, blend into one another and impact one another constantly. And uh, it just 
by way of one, you know, short example to illustrate that, many people have testified to the the fact that front lines, nonviolent, direct love and action resistance is very transformative on a personal level. So Satyagraha itself can be self-purification. And the same can be said of constructive program. When we're out working shoulder to shoulder in the community to restore relationship and balance, when we're growing food in our community and distributing that food to to our neighbors and, and so forth, that too is deeply transformative on a personal level. So all to say these are not watertight compartments. Gandhi didn't see them that way by any stretch. And so I use that metaphor as sort of the lead, the guide for the book, and I deal with each one of those three uh, aspects in separate chapters. And then in the final chapter, the one that I read from when we began our conversation, I try to pull it all together with some concrete uh, recommendations, proposals, suggestions about how we might uh, take Gandhi's teaching out into the world and give ourselves in service to this emerging movement of movements that we do see taking shape today. So that would be an answer to your first, mm-hmm. the first part of yes. your question. Yes. And um, coming back to the, the second part, you know, the conversation that you referred to was with a, a friend of mine uh, by the name of Anand, who I visited in India, and this was over 10 years ago now. And his statement was, mm-hmm. Gandhi is our greatest failure. Yes. Yes. And I, I basically begin the book there. And I do that for a number of reasons. One, one is to, uh, right off the bat, begin this process of inviting Gandhi down from the pedestal. And so we can love ourselves. And that's another layer of it as well. To, to see that... Perfection is is not <laughs> a requirement here, thank God, for us to be faithful in our response to, to what's in front of us. And that by placing people like Gandhi or Dr. King or Mother Teresa or mm-hmm. you name it, any of these great figures that tend to be pedestalized, by placing them up there, we distance ourselves from them. And we distance themselves, I think, also from an honest and fair assessment of our own beauty and power, which is, of course, mixed in with our our human frailty and, and failings. Beautiful. And so I don't have any need to rescue Gandhi from the, the criticisms <laughs> that are sometimes leveled against him about his, perhaps, his sexuality or... Um, right. Yeah. How, he, how he behaved as a father and so forth. We know that he was imperfect. We know that he made mistakes. And lucky for us, Gandhi was very open about this himself in his own writings. Uh, his life was, was quite an open book. And so we, we have access to his shadow side. And uh, I don't dwell on it in the book, but I do bring it, bring it up in, in hopes, like you said, so that we can, we can love ourselves mm-hmm. and um, we can see that we are uh, very qualified to be students of this teacher and many others, and to also accept that um, and to celebrate that there may be things that he could learn from us at this stage. 
in our development. And so those are some of the, the layers that I explore in terms of Gandhi as our, quote, greatest failure. One other piece I would, would add to that is this concept of holy failure. And that's a phrase that my friend Will Braun has used in some articles that he's written about various figures who have done the right thing but have not seen the, the fruits of their efforts that would, would mark those efforts as conventional successes. But nevertheless, he calls those so-called failures holy failure. And mm-hmm. I, like, I like the way that he's playing with language there. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the paradox in that, I think, is really important for us to, to sit with at this current time. In my view, we live, it, we live in a time where, as Joanna Macy says, uh, we don't know how this is going to play out. I'm speaking in specifics with, with regards to climate change. Sure. We're, we're so far down that path, it's impossible to predict. We, we know that some, some awful consequences are heading our way. We're already tasting them uh, and experiencing some of them. But we don't know how it's going to play out. A case can definitely be made that it's already too late. And many people are making that case in terms of our civilization surviving what's to come. The concept of holy failure to me is one more invitation for us to be brutally honest with ourselves about what it is that we feel we are meant to do, led to do, made to do, regardless of outcome regardless of whether or not it's going to bring about the change that we would hope to see, what are we as human beings called to do in this time anyways? And when I open myself to that question, I, I actually feel a certain kind of peace that I think is uh, deeply important, at least in my own life right now, to be in touch with. And I, as I say that, I'm especially mindful of my role as a father. I have an 11-year-old yeah. daughter, beautiful daughter. And mm. there's something about tapping into that sense of peace that I feel like is crucial for my ability to be present to her uh, during, this, during this incredible, precarious, and beautiful life. So those are some of the layers that I play with around this concept of failure in relation to Gandhi. And in your book, you say, I don't know how it's pronounced, but I say Swaraj. Swaraj. Swaraj is the part of Gandhi's teaching that uh, touches you the most. That So would you tell us what that is so we can sure. choose to practice it? When Gandhi came on the scene, Swaraj was already a commonly used word uh, to, to label the, the movement, actually. It was the Indian struggle for independence was often referred to as the Swaraj movement. Uh, Swaraj, when he came on the scene, uh, meant, uh, and, and it is translated as self-rule or home rule. Um, but uh, it was used in a way that, that uh, Gandhi saw as very limited. Uh, self-rule or home rule meaning basically political liberty. What Gandhi did with that word was he emphasized 
the self in terms of the individual self. And what he said was, we will achieve home rule for India, self-rule for India, as soon as enough of us as Indians, as individual Indians, get to that place where we're able to enjoy our full stature as human beings, where we reclaim that which has been forfeited to the empire in the internal plane. When enough of us have done that, he said, we'll no longer be an oppressible people. And his prediction was that the British would actually pack up and leave when that happened. That they wouldn't need to to oust them in, in the sense we might, you know, picture for a nonviolent revolution. But he said when we become that unoppressible people that is rooted in our own, you know, stature as as human beings, then that will be the outcome. And I, I do really uh, find great inspiration in his way of looking at Swaraj. And uh, I believe that it's a piece that we've sorely missed in, in our own mm-hmm. uh, U.S. context, where we tend to look for a political solution uh, to those problems besetting us. Uh, sometimes we'll we'll talk about the constructive alternative, uh, you know, in terms of constructive program, that's the language Gandhi would use, of, you know, how do we build the alternative to, to the system that's not working for us? And a few of us, it seems, have taken it upon ourselves to actually reform our own lives and to do that work of trying to reclaim our own full stature as human beings in the face of the oppression and degradation of of the domination system of the empire. But Gandhi really encourages us to place our, our initial attention there on that personal process. And I think that's, that's really key to, to his, whole, uh, his whole approach. If we miss that part, the whole thing kind of falls apart. Well, it seems to me that internalized oppression is the hardest um, the hardest work, the hardest swaraj. Like I notice almost every day in in which way I have internalized oppression as a woman. How do you how do you deal with that, you and your friends? Uh, <laughs> yes. Imperfectly and sometimes haltingly, we we try to stay open and honest about it, and often often fail. I think to to make the progress we would hope for. You know, it's interesting in my own practice lately. I've. Um, yeah, I feel I feel open and enough to just sort of confess I've I've set aside spiritual disciplines that that I've used to see as the real anchor of my practice, sitting meditation, for example, you know, of having a really disciplined daily practice of, of sitting in a particular way and following a particular teaching around that. I find myself these days just um, having a a practice of stopping 
and I don't stop and get myself into any particular posture. I don't stop and say any particular prayer. I just stop and sit and try to be. Mm. And um, with without any effort or, or pretense. <laughs> it's, it's a real sort of practice of surrender, I guess. Yes. I don't even know what to call it, uh, but it's, it's new and different. And um, what I found in doing this is that I'm able to have a certain kind of inquiry, a certain kind of conversation with myself that feels it's just say there's a great deal of intimacy mm. there and authenticity. Yeah. Uh, a certain level of honesty with myself that I'm not used to, despite the fact that I've had various spiritual practices for a couple decades at this point, and uh, it's almost like a giving up. And... Uh, in that space, I find this this depth of, of honesty uh, is opening me up to to some newness. And this, this feels like a roundabout way of answering your question about internalized oppression. But I guess I'm just sharing it because I think I'm onto something with it. And what I can say has grown out of that practice has been a deepened uh, desire and sense of uh, being led uh, to do more and more work around my relationship with people of color in, in the United States and my own feeling that my destiny uh, has something to do with taking initiative as a white person with reparations to victims of white supremacy mm-hmm. in in the United States. And I talk about that quite a bit in the book, but it's really grabbed hold of me since I finished the book, this aspect of uh, white atonement and reparations. And within that process, I'm, I'm being forced to spend time with my own internalized oppression. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I do have a handful of friends in my life that I can go to for guidance and accompaniment in that process. And as I said, it's messy and halting, but it, but it is. It, it's happening, and I'm grateful for that. I find myself so much beneath the ground floor on that heart and soul and and skin subject, I can't even imagine how I could feel myself inside of the inside of a person whose whose skin is a different tone of mine than mine, and I. It's almost like one of my practices is that that I I try to imagine myself dying, you know, mm-hmm. 
uh, it's a good thing. And and I I can't I can't I would like to I would love to. So I'm fascinated to to have some feeling of what it is to be in the skin and the life of somebody who's has a different skin tone. So I find that amazing that um, that you would be walking that path. I've been working on an article of late for Yes Magazine about white initiative with reparations to the victims of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And um, I to circle back to where we began our conversation with the concept of the movement of movement. I grow more and more convinced that uh, white folks taking initiative on reparations is essential to the gluing together, the binding of this movement of movement. And part of the reason I say that is that my own experience as an activist in movement spaces where there's a mix of races has shown me how how much distrust there is and it, it absolutely makes sense <laughs> the, the high degree of distrust there is between folks of color and the white community and in those movement spaces I've seen you know incredible work happen and um beautiful relationships forged. And at the same time, part of me knows that if white folks on a much broader scale than we've, we've ever done begin to express concretely atonement to seek forgiveness for not just for the, the crimes of, of our white ancestors who have set so much in motion that still continues to define, you know, our, our torture racial reality in the U.S. Sure. But but also our our current crimes, and one of them being the continued hoarding of of wealth uh, in such a disproportionate way as white folks, and that and that applies also to progressive white communities. I'm not just talking about the so-called 1%, for example. I'm talking about regular white folks whose inheritance is inextricably connected to the genocide of Native peoples and the enslavement of African Americans and so forth. Anyways, I continue to feel uh, deeply convinced that if we can step up to our responsibility and to the great opportunity we have to concretely begin to express atonement and reparations, I think that we'll find that movement of movements beginning to knit itself together in such a more powerful and beautiful way. So I've actually been playing with the idea of doing more writing on that subject um, because I, I grieve that the call for reparations continues to come from people of color when I believe it's, it's actually our responsibility, those of us who identify as and are identified as white in our society, yes. I believe it's our responsibility to make that call. Yes. 
and to and to heed that call. Yeah. So that that particular strand of of the call to integral nonviolence right now is really close to my heart. Well, it's all about uh, it's all about courage, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you just highlighted for me that forgiveness is about courage, and the way you describe it in the book is courage is coming out from behind the cannon to being in front of the cannon with a smile. Yeah, like that's Gandhi's language. That's language. Well, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't mine. Just to just to be clear, but yes, of course, but yes, yes, Gandhi. Oh, it's such a Gandhian sort of provocation. You know, he says, "Who has more courage?" You know, the person yes. who's there, ready to fire the cannon, or the person who stands in front of it. You know, with yeah, with a smile. With uh, a smile. Yeah. Such a such a call that is but I, I do believe that courage is at the heart of it and I, I think that yes. courage is gosh perhaps the most perhaps the central thing we have to learn from Gandhi really he often referred to fearlessness and that was actually one of the vows at the ashram communities he established was to endeavor towards fearlessness to overcome our fear of, of not not just of um you know, the fear of death, but fear of so many different things, the fear of losing our, our loved ones or our, our possessions of, of losing our reputation. Yeah, overcoming those fears, he believed, was um, a prerequisite for, for satyagraha, for that kind of resistance that was, was called for. So I do think courage is at the heart of it. And, and it's an interesting thing to think about in terms of what I was saying about reparations. I um, mm-hmm. am thinking back to when, when I was at Standing Rock in November and December oh. and, and witnessing uh, some very courageous acts on the part of, of white allies <laughs> who were there in service to the struggle that was so clearly and, and needed to be led by uh, indigenous folks. Yeah. And witnessing the shift uh, in terms of the the trust I was speaking about, you you could see a shift happen when white folks would put themselves on the front line, some of whom were willing to place their bodies in front of indigenous folks to protect them. The, the deep impact of that, I think, for both for the indigenous folks who witnessed that and also for the white folks who were able to put their mm-hmm. bodies in those mm-hmm. positions. The transformation that that makes possible in relationships with our, our co-workers in this work, I, I think is, is invaluable, uh, unquantifiable. Um, and one uh, young woman, an indigenous organizer, Christine Nobis, uh, who's, who's continued the work at an incredible project called um, Indigenous Iowa, it's a new sort of satellite camp that was born out of the Standing Rock struggle. She said that she believes that that kind of um, frontline presence is the most uh, powerful expression of reparations. 
I've been uh, I've been reflecting on that as well. That we needn't think of reparations just as a redistribution of monetary wealth. Right. Uh, there there are so many different ways that we can seek to repair. Obviously, not successfully repair anything remotely close to all of the damage that's been done, but to do something to repair some. Uh, so I take Christine's uh, assessment to heart. I was very touched this morning when uh, when my daughter said to me, uh, oh, um, her son, my grandson, who's 14, had a fight with somebody in school, and uh, they brought them in to do some repair work together. Mm. <laughs> I thought that was really yeah. beautiful. I do, too. Yes. I'm thinking about your talking about Standing Rock, and I'm thinking that was a that is, but was a huge Rosa Parks moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and in, in the Gandhian iceberg in the book, I talk about yeah, yeah, these Rosa Parks moments, the moments where where we're faced uh, with the opportunity to basically to say no to another person's or a system's attempts to degrade our humanity, our human personality. And yes, I would, I would agree with you wholeheartedly that, that what happened at Standing Rock was a, a big collective Rosa Parks moment with thousands of, of smaller individual Rosa Parks moments. A lot of people experiencing that that kind of pivotal moment where the system is is acting in such a way to degrade you and and you have that choice of whether or not you're going to go along with it or you're going to stand up and and say no to it in a dignified way yeah and i i think the the ripples are, are still being felt from Standing Rock. We're still sorting out what happened there and learning from it and figuring out how to to move forward, you know, with that momentum. Courage, for me, because I I, I choose uh, I choose the language that's gonna tattoo that's gonna tattoo me in a way that I need to be tattooed. So courage containing the word cœur, heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, I prefer to fearlessness because to me, a courage, a dignity, true dignity, really comes from the heart. What, what would you say? And I'd love to hear your, your thoughts and feelings about dignity at this time. I, I would just echo in, in agreement with you. For me, I'm much more inspired by courage, that that heart, uh, yeah, that much more heartful word than fearlessness. And, and also just to add that courage is something that you can bring, bring with you into fearful situations. While Gandhi was arguing that we should try to attain fearlessness, I... I don't know. 
I'm, yeah, again, more inspired by the idea of facing into things that make me afraid uh, through courage, moving through them, uh, with courage, moving through them. That feels, uh, I guess, more tangible, more doable <laughs> for mm-hmm. me than attaining some, some kind of uh, transcendent fearlessness. And in terms of dignity, you know, going back to the Rosa Parks moment concept, it's such an incredible image, you know, that's sort of seared in our our collective consciousness of of Rosa sitting in that seat and refusing to give it up mm-hmm. because of of all that that demand entailed, you know that the white bus driver, the demand the white bus driver was making on her, of all that that actually entailed, and for her to to make that refusal uh, with, with quiet dignity. Yeah, it stands for me as a beacon of, of how I want to, to move in the world uh, with the recognition that, that um, I and everyone uh, are utterly precious precious beyond description uh, as, as members of this, this universe of uh, recipients of life. And there's just, there's no word to describe um, how amazing it is and how beautiful. And so to me, dignity is, is a word that, that holds some of that, um, that beauty and amazingness, and there's a certain kind of awe that I feel embedded in that word dignity, because I think it 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 endeavors to to capture that which we would hope to protect. It's most true about what it means to be alive, and it's no accident that Dr. King, that Gandhi, and so many other practitioners of of nonviolence speak. Uh, consistently to dignity, and that at its root, the struggles that they were uh, both so deeply engaged in uh, were, at, yeah, at their root uh, about the preservation of of dignity for the individual person. And um, I think that each of us uh, has a role to play then uh, in this larger struggle that many of us are referring to as the great turning, you know, to to make this epochal shift to a truly just and life-sustaining society, I believe will require us uh, on an individual level to protect, preserve, and honor our, our dignity as human beings. And that, again, brings us back to that concept of Swaraj, mm-hmm. but that's what Gandhi was saying when he was was saying uh, self-rule and home rule uh, are about all of us in the space of our own our own lives and bodies and hearts mm-hmm. um, that the the future of the nation resides in each of us pursuing Swaraj within ourselves well my friends get this book the Gandhian or the Gandhian iceberg a nonviolent manifesto for the age of the great turning and keep this book 
as a companion and a friend on the road we are walking together. And thank you so much, Chris, for you, for your book, and for these moments. Thank you so much, Joanna, for the invitation to speak with you and uh, to share with you, and, and also for for the way that you, you read the book. I can tell that you really opened yourself up to the possibilities I was I was trying to uh, yeah to put out into the world, and it means so much to me to to know that you uh, you took the time and and yeah gave your heart to to the book in that way. It's such a a treasure to me when when readers let me know that that that's happened. So it's very gratifying. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Till next time. <laughs>